right, so it's John 8, and I'm just going to read from verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is an amazing text, and as I've said, this is a, a great privilege. Um, the title of my preach tonight is, It's Not About Her. Um, uh, there's many other titles we could give to this section of Scripture, but it's certainly not about her. A little bit of story. Uh, as Gabe mentioned, I was in Cambodia for a long, long time. I think it was our second year, 2006, we were there. There was a, in the press, this came, there came about this, this new law, and there was this, all this talk about this new law, and we were really excited about it. A bit of context for those of you who don't know. Cambodia is a country that is famous for many things, but one of them is for sexual impropriety. Let me put it that way. There's sexual sin left, right, and center, and debauchery is, is, is on sale. Um, so when they brought out this new law, it was the law of monogamy. There was a lot of excitement amongst the Christians. There's a lot of, you know, people with morals were like, good, there's going to be some law that's going to be now enforced. Unfortunately, it was not about her. What the story was actually, why the government actually passed the law so quickly, the opposition leader, it was common knowledge that he had extramarital activity going on. So the reason they passed that law was to isolate and discredit the opposition leader. He was then forced into exile months before the next election. Coincidence? I think not. It was not about her. Right? It was about this other thing that was going on. So in this text, we've got a very similar thing going on. So I'm going to actually break it down into a few different things. Um, firstly, I want to start with what does she do? Because she's not innocent. Right? She's there for a reason. She was caught in the act of adultery. Now, there's lots of teachers or, you know, fancy biblical scholars that have got all sorts of uh, stories of how they caught her. And basically, it could have been a setup, but I'm not going to go there. But how do you catch somebody in the act? It's a good question. But uh, she was guilty. Guilty as charged. And when they brought her in, it's very interesting. If you look at the Greek, she had to stand there. She stood in the middle of what was an excellent teaching moment for Jesus. Interrupted, now the lesson is about her, all right? But as we look at the, the Pharisees, it was clearly not about her. So I want to look at, so the woman basically, when you talk about what did she do, she did it. She was guilty as charged, all right? 
What did they do? Well, firstly, as I said, they interrupted an awesome teaching moment. It says there in the text that all the people were gathering around Jesus. Now, if you look at the context before, there's been amazing teaching moments where Jesus has literally taken the city by storm, right? So he's, he is surrounded by people in the temple, and they walk in, and they just disregard that. The people that had come to hear him are now hearing the Pharisees. They brought her, and they placed her quite unceremoniously. I can imagine she hadn't had time to have a shower, right? So you can, she's exposed, we don't know to what extent, but she's exposed and she's standing. They made her stand in the middle of the crowd. I can't think of a more objectifying story. It's, it's not a moral story, this. They're just objectifying her. She's, she is a focus of shame, but it's not even about her. And I'm going to explain to you what I mean now. It says it quite clearly, um, this was about a trap, but I'll get there in a minute. So they, they've objectified her, they put her on show. Interestingly, it's just her. It takes two to tango, but we only got one. And there's some stories behind that, I'm not going to get into it. But where's the guy? You've got to ask the question. Um, obviously, a different historical context. But the Pharisees, what did they do? So they put her on as an object. They just literally shame her. And then they go all law and order. They start quoting the law quite um, inaccurately, actually. Um, if we look at Deuteronomy 22, it actually says, it doesn't say anything about stones. It says, if a man and woman are caught in adultery, they should die. Right? And it doesn't actually, in that context, it doesn't actually mention the stoning. That's actually a completely different context. So they are, they're quoting law here, but again, they care less about her. This was probably not even part of their, their game plan. I don't think they even intended to stone her. I think they were just, as the text says, it was a trap for Jesus. Right? So when we think of it, oh, Jesus was merciful, he, he saved her life. Well, I don't think it was actually going to go there. Because th their whole modus operandi was to catch Jesus, right? And I want to look at the trap because it's, it's really interesting. Um, if you look at Jesus, what he's known for up until this point, he's the merciful. He's the, the friend of sinners. He's the one who previously, you know, in John, John 5, has broken the Sabbath. This isn't the first time he's going to break the law, by the way, or not exactly subscribe to the law. Right? But they are force, they're forcing his hand. Either it's, it's either going to be mercy or it's going to be the moral law. Right? He has to make a choice, and that's where the trap lies. Um, the, the trap for him really is they, they're saying to him, they're quoting the Jewish law, right? They, this is what he has to do. But in Roman law, if he was to subscribe to them and say be stoned, he's actually not allowed to. So he'd be breaking Roman law, because he didn't have the authority to, to condemn someone to death, right? So that's one of the, one of the tr there's so many little intricacies in that trap, that's one of them. It's, okay, so he can't say, okay, do it, firstly because it's going to be compromising his own nature. We know him as the merciful. 
There's no platform for grace if you condemn someone. And he's already started to unpack that. John 3.16 with Nicodemus. That's all about a pathway to righteousness. That conversation with Nicodemus. This is a man that has wrestled with righteousness. And Jesus has unpacks it for him. That's a massive grace story. So then, what about if, if he does condemn her? He's violating his reputation. But he's also violating Roman law. If healing on the Sabbath was not breaking the law. Why is there such a weight on this mercy on this mercy with the moral law? I want you to think about it. I thought about it a lot yesterday, like in the week. Healing on the Sabbath in John 5, we can all agree with that. Because it's mercy towards somebody who was a victim. That we we don't we, we've never been in that space. Most of us. It's healing of somebody that was without help. But now, adultery, we all disagree with. The moral law, has, it has a lot more social weight. So what, is, what are the Pharisees doing here? They're going after the popular vote. That's what they're doing. They're trying to discredit Jesus from that, from that standpoint. Because if he condemns her, ah, well, Anyways, you're also bound to the law like we are. Right? So the popular vote has a huge weight in Israel at the moment because they all are actually under Roman law. Right? Discrediting a rabbi was common practice for the rabbis. They had to give... Who, who do you teach? I teach Gamaliel. Or I teach. They would teach each other's sermons. So discrediting, this is something that they would have practiced. Practiced discrediting other robots. The problem for them is they're up against Jesus. So what did, the, what did she do? She was guilty. What did they do? They set a trap for him. And remember, it was not about her. Now, the beautiful thing in the story is Jesus makes it about her. Jesus brings it back to her. He brings it back to how he can actually operate in grace. So what does Jesus do? At first glance, he really seems to ignore them. Right? Now, I picture this. I picture him actually walking over to her. Right, because he was teaching. He was seated. So there's a stand, walk. Now he's, he's, he's in humility, but also in proximity. Right? Remember that about Jesus. When you're in your sin, he's always close. He's always close. Jesus is not afraid of her sin. He's not threatened by it. This is not new to him. So he gets close, unfussed, bends down and writes with his finger in the ground. Now there's, some, there's many different explanations for this writing in the ground. Um, remember who he's writing in front of. He's writing in front of her. I imagine it's quite close. She can see. But they also they are surrounded by the Pharisees. 
so they can see what's been written. Now, lots of different things that, they, that he could be writing. I want to do, look at two scriptures, though. Jeremiah 17. verse 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Now, Jesus knows these Pharisees. He knows where they're going. He knows their hearts are actually not after him. Their hearts are after something else. They are the definitive forsakers. So him writing is reminding them of this. They would have Jeremiah, right? Him reminding them, you're going to forsake the names are written. There's another explanation that I'll be honest, I prefer it. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Genesis, sorry, Exodus 31 verse 18. It says this. Now, remember, just before I read this, the Pharisees have said, Moses told us. Moses is their man. In some cases, when you read the Pharisees, they're more interested in Moses than they are in God. Right? So Moses told us. Moses, okay. So here, Exodus 31, it says, and he gave Moses. Okay, good. He gave Moses the law. When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave him two, two tablets of the testimony Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I'm imagining Jesus standing in front of the Pharisees. He's saying, Moses? Moses who? Right? Who's Moses? This hand. This hand wrote the law. This hand writes the law. Jesus does not overlook Right? I can see him actually writing out those two laws. Adultery and murder are next to each other in Exodus 20. Right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill. Next to each other. Right? I don't know if that's what he wrote, but I can imagine him writing the law, looking at the Pharisees, looking at her. Both of them stand condemned under the law. Both of them. Because that's what he says. That's what he says. He says, who of you? Right? Getting ahead of myself here. Getting excited. Now, there's something else I want to just focus on for a moment. Individualization and mob mentality. There's something going on here. When they come in carrying the, the or bring the woman in, they're a mob. Right? Group thought, all subscribe to the same thing. This is the way we're going to go, and everyone's chanting the same thing. What does Jesus do for the Pharisees? What does he say? I actually want to read it. Verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one. He demobifies them in that moment. 
their mob mentality is disintegrated because he says, which one of you is without sin? He forces them into personal reflection, right? And each one of them knew, oh gosh, I don't, hand, I don't stand up to that. No, no, nobody, nobody does. Let me just help you. Nobody stands up to that law. All right, so Jesus knew that. So when he says that, he's, he's forcing them into a moment of individual, like I'm actually myself. I can make my own choices. And the beauty of the story is the mob goes away. And she's been rescued. But if you look at it, she's still standing. But this standing is different. When she's standing now, she's standing in dignity. She's not standing in shame. She has been restored. She's anticipating forgiveness. This is before he tells her, but she's standing. And Jesus is standing in front of her. When you've, when you've, when you've fallen, when you're in your moment of, of weakness, who's standing in front of you? Who is standing in front of you? It's Jesus. It is not the accuser, the Pharisee's footsack. They're gone, right? Because you know what? Each one of them had their own issues, right? Who's standing in front of her? Who is redeeming her? Who's restoring her? Who's commissioning her? Because he says, go. Go, go where? Go home? She's probably going to go home, but she's going into a new life. She's going into a life of, gosh, I thought it was over. This reminds me of the prodigal son. The son that was dead is now alive. She has, in a sense, experienced resurrection. She has an insight beyond what the disciples have. Because this is pre-cross, right? She has an insight. What does it mean? I, I was anticipating death. And now I'm walking into a new life. I think the, the grace that we receive has to be clearly understood. The, those two things that he says to you at the end, neither do I condemn you. That's been a lot of the grace story that we've heard. There's no condemnation for those of in Christ Jesus. And yes, that's true. But how sustainable, from an emotional point of view, is it if I continue to live a life of compromise? From, I'm just thinking, I'm sorry, I used to be a counselor. And I know, I've encountered this. People that continually confess, they get, there's a, I'm not going to diagnose anything now, but that is a root of a lot of anxiety, is I, I'm living this compromise, and I just get forgiveness, and I'm just going to come back there. No, he says to her, now that you have life, the one that was dead is now alive. Go and sin no more. That is a sustainable grace, because it's an empowering grace, right? It empowers us to live a life like a son like a daughter of the king. I don't have to be, like Proverbs says, returning to my vomit like a dog. Because that's what it is, and we know it. Each one of us know that tastes foul when we get there. On um, Friday, I wasn't, sorry, this isn't my notes, but I just feel like I should share it. Um, 
I'm a very lucky new homeowner, and uh, it's a process. <laughs> but um, it's the first time I've had to deal with a swimming pool. And um, for those of you that have swimming pools, sympathies. Um, but um, I actually, I was, I was sitting down and prepping, and then I just felt like I'm actually just going to go and just sweep the leaves off the top of the pool. And I'm doing this, and as I'm doing this, I'm very aware of the fact that there's algae on the walls of the pool, and I can scrape it with, the, you know, but it's just, and I discovered, actually this week, there's something called pH. It's all new learning for me, right? This is all new learning. So if the pH level in the pool is too low, it's too acidic, algae loves it, right? And when I was, I was literally pulling the leaves off the top of, and this is in the moment, I was halfway through my prep, I'm pulling leaves off the top of the pool and God says, this is this. This is this, what you're doing now is the same. So many Christians, that's what we do. We just scoop the leaves off the top of the pool. It's because it's what people can see. But there's stuff in the water that needs to be changed. We have to add true grace. Needs to be put in the water so that we can actually be changed. Transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be transformed, not just let me change the makeup. Let me change the window dressing. Let me get the leaves off the top of the pool. This is probably a good time to get someone. I don't know. That's going to happen. Uh, do you want me to? <laughs> what does Jesus do for us all? It's very clear what Jesus did for her. I actually also, forgive me, but I actually think Jesus gave the Pharisees an, a rescue moment as well. Because that's the kindness of God leads to repentance. He gave them an option to change. Right? They, they were given a confrontation that forced them to think about themselves. Similarly, in the story of the prodigal son, for those of you that know that, son goes away, squanders comes back without anything. The father runs to him. The only time the father runs is because his son's returning from a wayward life. At the end of that, now that's a, that's a parable. At the end of that parable, who is outside? The old brother. He could be the Pharisee. We have a choice. The Pharisees had a choice from that moment. The older brother and the prodigal son had a choice. We all have a choice. How are we going to respond to grace? How are we going to respond to the story of forgiveness? Am I going to just continue because it comes easy? It was not easy. Jesus on the cross is not easy, but it paid in full. And if I understand that my sin put him there, how am I going to have a relaxed, easy, laxy-daisy relationship with sin? I can't. Likewise, I can't be the condemner or the accuser of the brethren. I can't be the, the older brother left out. I want to be in the house. That means I have to be loving and accepting and be Christ-like as far as I can to my brothers. In sin, I want to be compassionate. I need to show them the law, show them grace, show them forgiveness, show them 
a resurrected life. Why did Jesus raise from the dead? It's simple. So he could show us, firstly, it happens, but what does a resurrected life look like? I've been on a journey for about two years now, just on and off, quite honestly, exploring spiritual disciplines. And some of them we might think are archaic. Some of them are, you know, a bit like, you know, go live on the hill like a monk. Yes, they are. But that spiritual practices I've found to be incredibly helpful. The reason I'm mentioning this is at the beginning of this scripture, each one went to his home. home. Jesus went to the mountain. In terms of practice and living and working out your, your faith, because that's what Paul says, we need to work it out. My advice to you is practice the discipline of silence. It's been one then, and again, sorry, this isn't my notes, but I just feel Jesus on the mountain is with the Father. When I shut up and I'm not praying, I'm not worshiping, I'm not even reading my Bible, but I'm sitting and saying, God, speak. That's where I learn to be a bit more like Him. That's that space where I learn to, ah. That's where I messed it. That's where I messed up. That's where I, he comes and he helps me reflect in that silence. That's just one of them. I encourage you, go and look up. What are the different spiritual disciplines that Jesus did? That's why that's one of them. Jesus went and he was silent. If we look at the story of grace and we look at the story of the church and Thanks, Gabe, for that magnanimous introduction. But we're all just giving it a go, if we're honest. 14 years in Cambodia, I'm just giving it a go. Right? There's nothing great about my wife and I. We just heard God and moved. That's, that's simple. And I think we complicate the call of God. We really complicate it. What does He say? Give it a go. Do what he says and give yourself grace when you don't get it right, but also give other people grace. You see, the, the thing of the Pharisees, we, we love to point fingers at them. They were also giving it a go. I'm going to pray for us. Can you stand with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for your incredible, your incredible example of how you turned the tables in a trap that was designed to catch you out for political gain. You made it about her again. You always make it about us. Jesus, I pray that you would also help us to understand exactly where you are in our weakness. Help us, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to see where you are. 
Father God, as, as we, we think about the prodigal son and how that, that story has so many, so many echoes in this, I thank you that you ran. You ran. You were completely focused on the returner. Now, God, for us, for those of us that are returning to you tonight, help us to see the Father running. Help us to put aside the naysayers and see the one that is running. But also help us, oh God, those that have been faithful in the house. And sometimes we might have even like the, the older brother and the prodigal son might have felt left out or, oh, we didn't have chance to sacrifice a goat. Oh. Well, God, help us to rejoice with the angels as each time there's someone returning there celebrating. Help us. Help us, oh God. Holy Spirit, I pray you work in our hearts right now where we need it. If you are responding now to the story of grace and returning to the Father, see Him running to you. You have wide open arms. If that's you, I ask you, would you raise your hand? Make a response to Jesus and his grace and his story for you and look forward to a resurrected life, a life of newness and new life. If you've had to fight, like me, the pharisaical heart, I pray that you'd repent for that as well. you felt judgment come on you felt judgment for your brother you felt like you needed ah they're just going that way anything that dismisses is political when it's us and them that is political I would encourage you to stay away from that Jesus was inclusive the gospel is inclusive let us be inclusive in our response to brothers God give us the grace and the fortitude to be able to do that. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus.